All right, we are live. Welcome, welcome. This is Emily with the Community Agriculture Project, and I'm here with Trevor. And the Community Agriculture Project is a documentation project and resource directory that can connect people with their local ag resources. We are also an educational resource to help you discover whatever it is you need in order to embrace the idea of food sovereignty. Um, So I recently found out about this person that we're interviewing today. Their name is Trevor and um, they're currently studying at Columbia in New York City. Uh, I found out about their work and I was really inspired by the uh, by the environmental data collection that they are doing and we're going to hear all about it today and how in some ways it ties into community advocacy and how it ties into agriculture and just more about environmental testing because based on everything that continues to go on in our changing environment this is one thing that I personally think we should really buckle down on so Hey Trevor, what's up? Introduce yourself for everybody, please. All right, hello. I am Trevor Durning. I'm an undergraduate environmental chemistry and sustainable development student at Columbia University. And I'm currently researching uh, atmospheric chemistry in peri-urban agricultural zones. So what that means is I study the atmosphere where farmland meets city sprawl landscapes. And, uh, yeah, that's where I'm at right now. That's so incredible. It's pretty fun. It's it's like so specific. Um, I love it. Gotta find your piece of gotta find your piece of research. Gotta find your corner somewhere. Yeah, your niche. And based on what you've described to me so far, I don't wanna I don't know if you wanna tell everybody what your other connections are aside from like what you were saying, how your dad's a politician and just like what what is the community landscape that you work in like I, that's something I really like to highlight on this podcast is community agriculture project how does agriculture affect the community and vice versa in this case how are you connected to your community and how does the, your community influence what you do and the research that you do all right so the way that I got into this was really from my family um where my family's house is located, I back up to a farm. A farm and the uh, crops are corn and soybean mainly, uh, you know, maybe a couple other legumes, but that's, that's what they're growing. And those crops have a lot of input and there's a lot of processes that need to happen to the land in order for those crops to grow. And then even more to get it to market, but that's a little bit outside the scope here. Um, so really what was happening is I'm studying at Columbia and I was originally studying sustainable development. Uh, the elevator pitch for that is people, planet, profit. You just try to make a three-legged stool nice to sit on, all right? <laughs> and uh, I began doing research on farms um, just pertaining to sustainability. You know, what kind of crops they're having, the size of the farm, if they're doing land sparing versus land sharing um, methods, um, how they're, you know, fighting eutrophication of the water downstream, uh, leaching of, um, you know, nitrogen and phosphorus and there's all sorts of stuff. You could go into so many things. Well, my mom calls me one day and she's like, you know, I can't even breathe. 
Like, what do you mean you can't breathe? Well, you know, it's dusty outside. Oh, it's dusty outside, huh? So I go down, and sure enough, there's like a coating of, of dust on the cars, and you can't go outside. And I started driving around and looking, and everybody was tilling the land at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I uh, just decided to start studying that, and I put up one of these purple air monitors that we're going to talk about in a little bit. Um, but also, as far as like to talk to your point about the community advocacy, my father was a politician on the planning board growing up for a town nearby to where I live. And they were attempting to build high density residential on top of the local watershed where the town drew about 90% of its water from. And my, my father, you know, good on him, fought it and and won and got a Sierra Award for it. So, you know, I've seen it done before and now I see this issue that's happening and I've been studying it using these monitors that we're going to talk about. And, you know, you just need to, you need to have some sort of voice. And, um, yeah, I don't know how far you want me to go into that. I mean, it's fantastic. You can keep going for a little bit. So... In the past, when you look at someone, when you look at a time where like a movement happened and something was accomplished, okay, uh, the main thing that happened was there was someone that really understood the issue that allowed the community to become knowledgeable on the topic. And then by the way that our government is set up currently, they made things happen. And we can look at Rachel Carson um, back in the 60s who, you know, based on her work, it's called Silent Spring by Rachel Carson. Go look it up. Uh, it's a great work. You don't have to read it cover to cover, but definitely pick some pieces where, you know, you, this might speak to you. And the EPA was created like seven years later. And that was supposed to be governing all of these issues that are, we're coming in contact with, whether it be, you know, when the water in New York City wasn't as good as it is now, it's because they were polluting upstream and we figured that out and we created a buffer for the uh, Hudson Valley watershed and now no agriculture happens near there and our water's, it's not as good as it was in the 90s, but it's still pretty good. But, you know, the EPA didn't put that into practice. That was New York. So, like, the EPA is supposed to govern anything that happens between states that affects one state's environment and it seems like they're not doing that and I think it could fall on not only the leaders of the community, but the community just doesn't know, just doesn't have the information. And that's really where the deployment of these purple air sensors and, you know, my research, that's kind of where it's taken me. It's like, you know, someone needs to know what's happening because we don't know. Right. And I love that you are taking action on this and yeah, just providing the information that's needed. So how, when... You first decided that, okay, people need to know this information. So what was the next step after that? Like, where did your research take you? And how did you get to the point where you're like, yeah, I'm going to deploy these these purple sensors, purple air sensors? So it started, how did this start? It started when I read a paper by my lead research professor on alkaline hydrolysis of paint products and the indoor air quality. So I understood that as these, as the paint dries, 
it releases these volatile organic compounds into the air. They undergo alkaline hydrolysis, and they're and they hurt human health. Um, and she also did some other research that monitored uh, before we all came back for COVID to school. They ran CO2 concentration uh, in rooms and then tested the filtration of the air and how quickly that happened to see if it would affect COVID transmission in the classroom. And from that research, they actually say that the classroom, as long as you're wearing masks, isn't a trans isn't a um, a site where you can get sick from. It's like a transmission site. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I believe it, but we'll go with it. <laughs> and um, double mask always. So I, I read about that and I tried to think, you know, where is this happening in my life? And I couldn't, for the life of me, think where where am I drying paint? Like it's just not happening. <laughs> So I there just, wasn't that connection of like, yeah, how is this present in my life? Yeah, it this, wasn't this there. idea and this topic. Like, how can I apply it to my life? The but what I did realize is that there are particles in the air all the that time. We can't all the time everywhere everywhere that we can't Fungus, see. Bacteria. Everything is going in and out of your body, and you don't really know. Like, I never really thought about what was happening, and then I thought about the farm. And I just started looking, I, I went and spoke with uh, Dr. McNeil, and I said, listen, could I do this outside? And she's like, well, what do you mean outside? Like, well, my mom stepped out the other day and she couldn't breathe. And she, her eyes lit up. And I looked at her, I was like, am I onto something? She's like, you're actually really onto something. She couldn't breathe. I said, yeah, no, she definitely can't. And she, my mother is, to give you some information, she's... In her 60s, she might have, is she 70? I don't think she's 70 yet. All right, maybe not. Hey, Ma. <laughs> she's 60. Let's say she's 60. So, you know, she's going to be living there for the rest of her life. This is this is ridiculous. She's being exposed to this unknown particle. And I, uh, so originally I thought of agriculture. Let's look at agriculture first. And you can see there's a paper from UC Davis in 1996. The title is, it's by Klaus... Klausnitzer and Singer, and the title is Respirable Respirable Dust Production from Agricultural Operations in the Sacramento Valley, California. Mm -hmm. And they're basically like, hey, there's this dust here. We know it's there. And that's the reason, and that's the paper. Okay. (laughs) That is the basis of of a lot of research. Like when it first begins, it's like, hey, this is a thing, everyone. Yeah. Like, okay, thanks, man. And then you have to pass it off into the other scientists and and develop it and see where it goes. So what was the paper that you came across that... Because, okay, I used to live in Oregon, and I went through a couple fire seasons, right? So during the fire seasons, there was, like, we were advised to stay inside, couldn't go outside. I have, like, pretty serious asthma, so I, like, I really was not trying to go inside. And I couldn't even be... I had to evacuate my apartment because... I couldn't be inside my apartment because there was not filtered AC because a lot of places where I was living in Oregon, they don't have AC systems. So I had to go somewhere with good filters and I was all the time checking the air quality. So I guess what I'm thinking about in terms of like the purple air sensors is like, what's the connection between the purple air sensor setup and what we usually can look up on Google and be like, okay, this is the air quality near me right now. And also, what was that step of you being like, okay, can I do this outside? All right, purple air. That's the way. As compared to just like 
yeah, why, how, to what level can we trust the things that we see on the internet that are being reported? It's kind of a lot of questions at once, but they kind of tie together. I got together. you, I got you, I got you. Okay, so I'm going to start with the paper where I realized that outdoors needs to be monitored was a paper from January of this year, and it's called New Particle Formation at a Peri-Urban Agricultural Site. And mm-hmm. they monitored new particle formation, which is there's so much stuff in the air that it's clumping together and it's undergoing some sort of transformation. Reaction. reaction. Maybe and, both reaction and transformation. Well, yeah, it could react. If it reacts to light and it's photovoltaic, then it'll undergo one reaction. Uh, if the if the water in the air is more acidic than it normally is, it could mm. undergo a different reaction. And that's probably true. And it's absolutely probably true, especially if you live near a road. Yeah. So that gets us to trusting the things that you find on the internet as far as looking up your air quality index isn't accurate because you need a, you need a higher resolution data set. Mm. Um, these emissions are happening at the local level. Even if your neighbor is burning a pile of yard waste, that's releasing particulate matter in the air. And if it's coming in contact with an anthropogenic uh, volatile organic compound that's being burned from a plant, say, 15 miles away, that could, if that's a particle loading event, something could be happening there. Um, If there's an oxygen attached to a nitrogen, um, you know, there could be some sort of hydrogen bonding happening in the air. Um, and that hydrogen bonding is, you know, the strongest bond that you can make in, uh, chemistry, right? So it's, uh, definitely important to have a better data set at the local level rather than wherever you're getting from Google. If you live, say outside of Wilmington, you know, there's only, I I can count, Maybe. So Wilmington, just to be clear for the listeners, Wilmington is the area where, or, or the roundabout area of where your parents' house is. So my parents' house is uh, south of Philadelphia and northeast of Wilmington. I can, it's very, it's not far. It's one bridge away and um, yeah, very close to Wilmington, Delaware. So if you were in that area and you looked up like, oh, what's my air quality, it would show you the Wilmington area. Yes, exactly. So they're getting data from like the EPA's main uh, air quality index sensors. And those sensors, you know, you didn't set them up, right? So where are they at? Let's go try to find the sensor right now. It's probably on the top of a building, um, you know, tucked away or on the side of a building tucked away. And it's probably only being, you know, looked at. I can't, I can't say this for sure, but it's probably not being looked at too much to check out how it's doing. And, and yeah, there's all different types of time intervals that you would want to look at when creating a data set. So I can tell just based on our previous conversation that that's something that you take into account. Like you're like, yeah, I want to know what happened in the last hour. You know, I want to know what's happening. Like, so it sounds like these purple air sensors, they have higher resolution and also just like more robust data in the sense of like time. Yeah, I can look at it right now and get the real time air quality index for uh, particulate matter 2.5. So that's 
particulate matter that are 2.5 microns and below. It's pretty small stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and see exactly what's going on right now. And then um, that actually takes me into the high split modeling. So let's actually talk a little bit more about the purple air sensor. So the purple air sensor, to give you a little bit of an idea of what it looks like, it's take a little piece of PVC pipe and then put like a PVC cap on it. Mm -hmm. And then inside there's a little computer chip and two fans. And then as particulate matter runs through those fans, there are little lasers. And the lasers shoot through and it just monitors how many times the reflection comes back and that's the particulate matter concentration. Right. Um, so I just put one of those up and it tells me when an event happens. And so two questions, where did you get it from and how much did it cost? Uh, it didn't cost me anything, thank you Columbia. Oh, okay. But yeah, it is $250. Okay. And you can get it from their website. I'm pretty sure it's just purpleair.com. Checking. Yeah, so it's just at purpleair.com. And then I use the um, the Flex Air Quality Monitor, $279. And you can get indoor ones as well if you're interested in that. Um, but yeah, so they it gives me real-time data. And I can just look, see what's happening, and then I run a model to find where that concentration of particulate matter more than likely came from. I can't say exactly I did because I'm running it through this model, um, but there's a very high chance. And on what software do you run your models? So the models get ran on a high split modeling system. So this high split. Uh, was created by NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, um, their Air Resources Lab. And HiSplit is the computer program that you download and you have to do a little bit of work. So that's where I think I probably need to take it on myself to make it easier to install on your computer mm. because it took me like half a day to figure it out. I tried to do it on the Mac. No shot. Mm. Got my Windows computer out, did it on the Windows computer. So there's definitely a little bit of a disconnect technologically speaking. Um, and also it sounds like quite an accessibility issue because I'm thinking like, all right, $280-ish for a community to get one sensor. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking about community resources. Like what where my mind is going right now is like, how can we set up a budget to propose to the city set or the, the area so that every community can set up a network and the people in the community don't have to pay for the shit out of pocket yeah. because okay we got Columbia funding this research and funding funding you to figure this out bless up <laughs> and so how do we put the pieces together for for people to have this but anyway I'll let you continue on just like what you figured out setting up the software because that is really important like I hear I hear about and see amazing uh you know interfaces all the time with different apps and etc cetera, etc cetera. but then of course I'm always a very curious person I'm, I'm science-minded and tech like I'm with it with the technology so I go to set it up and I'm like sheesh this is taking me a lot longer than expected. And like, if somebody else were to do this, like how would I create a guide to help somebody else do this? Like it's actually, it's quite a bit of work. So, and this is why people don't do it. 
Because A, lack of resources, B, lack of instruction. And that's why I'm like, having, like, this is brilliant. Like, it's really important what you're doing because this is how, how we can actually try to help people have more agency in terms of, you know, environmental testing. But continue. Yeah, my, my parents can't figure out how to do this. I'll tell you right now, they're not going to be able to do it. So, it, it, to let you know how in-depth this program is, um, it's called HySplit, okay? H-Y-S-P-L-I-T. And that stands for Hybrid Single Particle Lagrangian Integrated Trajectory. All right. And I'm familiar with Lagrangian because of my math background, but like most people would hear that and be like, hmm? Yeah, it's a bunch of math. It's, yeah. it's What they do is they're taking each grid on a map and as they take in whatever the file is that's proprietary to this program, all of the different values of pressure and wind and temperature and humidity and what type of particle you think it is, deposition rate, and then they can spit back out an image model. That way you can understand and disseminate information easier. Um, to let you know how difficult it is, they have a five-day, uh, what would you call it, workshop that they had in 2022, which is great to have a workshop, but it was five days, five hour, five to six hours a day on this application. And... I mean, the piece that I used for today was all in the second day after installation. Um, but there's a lot that you can do with it. There's a ton. You can do vertical mixing and the different properties that happen there, Iso, isocentric or isobaric and all this different stuff. Um, and it's really, it's really a lot of information. So being able to make it easier to access is definitely something that I probably will have to take on myself just because I need to replicate this data over a larger area. Mm -hmm. I have one sensor that backs up to a farm in New Jersey. I'm you only have one sensor? I have one right now. Okay. I have another one I need to deploy, but I'm waiting to deploy it based on these models that I just got today. Mm -hmm. So I need to understand um, if, if I put it on the other side of this concentration area, uh, what's the model going to look like over there? And then you can, if you can literally show the trajectory, that's great. But if I had 20 of these sensors, I could monitor with high resolution across a grid what's happening in between each sensor. Right. Um, and so what is, or is this something that you're figuring out, or is this something that's in the specs of the sensor itself? Like, what is the radius of the sensor? Uh, it's where you put it. It's, it's just where you put it, like 10 meters above the ground, and if it passes through the fan, you're going to get that information right there. So you don't know about, like, the... the you, no, so that's why you would need more, right? Yeah, the spatial, they, like, the spatial recognition of, like, yes. how how far is this actually going? That's called a concentration point. Mm. And so I'm running models on that now, uh, and then you have to look at uh, concentration clusters as well to see what the chances were that this particle came on what pathway. Mm. And you can tell all of that just from having the one sensor? And using high split. So that's where the high split oh. comes in comes in key. Because if I if I can figure out, which I can with the purple air sensor, when this level of particle, whenever this level of particle, say it's 110 um, uh, PM 2.5 on the AQI scale, the air quality index scale for the EPA. 
So say it's at 110. Um, I can mark that point on a grid, on a, on a graph, and then I can run a backwards model from that time period and figure out where the particle probably came from. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so that's what you've been doing with your models and what and what you've showed me a little bit is like, all right, I'm trying to backtrack and see, can I find out what these particles that I'm measuring, can I find out where they came from? Because then that would answer your question of like, is it coming from this farm? Where is it coming from? And that that's kind of like your hypothesis. You're like, oh, I think it's coming from this place, but let me find out through these models where it's actually coming from. So, so you ran some things and what did you find today? Yeah, so basically... So exciting that you did all this just today. Like, I love it. Yeah, I did this this morning. Um, basically, what it's showing is that the concentration plume and the backwards trajectory are in congruence, which means they do look pretty similar. And you can see that the major area of concentration is coming from northern Delaware. Okay, right at that little tip it's got like a little pan it's in like it's like at the point and if you drive over there you can see it's a huge industrial area mm -hmm. um and there's also an industrial area in chester that's where i really thought it was coming from i thought it was coming from chester because i had spent more time there uh, going to soccer games and stuff uh, but yeah based on this model it actually shows like northern delaware in that little is that called the piedmont i believe that's a, that's called the delaware piedmont it's a geological uh, area that has jurassic rock Okay. That's a thing. Sorry about that. No. Interesting. Yeah, just to let you know, I've done a little bit of that. And uh, and then I did some ransom trajectories at different heights, and you can see, so... And, the, and why do we want to look at different heights? So the reason you look at different heights is because there's a mixing boundary layer. Mm -hmm. And what happens at this, thanks to wind shear... Um, Which is wind that goes on the horizontal plane. Exactly. And so... Yes, well, let's leave it at that. I'm not going to talk about tornadoes right now. But we'll leave the tornadoes, we'll leave the tornadoes out of it. <laughs> so, so there's that mixing boundary layer, and above the boundary layer is fast-moving air that isn't going to mix very well because the wind shear is high. Below that boundary layer uh, is where all this particulate matter is getting mixed, and it's the air you and I breathe, okay? And what's happening is as particulate matter gets released into this mixing boundary layer, uh, you can you try to trace it based on like the wind and how it mixes and um, and the, the temperature and the humidity and all sorts of different inputs. There's a bunch of math on it. That's that Lagrangian mm -hmm. trajectories. That math magic that happens based on these inputs, which are just our environmental conditions at any given time, which change uh, every hour, day and night, with the seasons, with the weather. Everything. It's Every, all happening. It's all happening all yeah. the time. And so you basically just try to run it. I try to run my model at the top, like just below the top of that boundary layer, in the middle of the boundary layer, and closer to the ground where that where my sensor is. And you want to get, and did you choose three just to create like a robust data set? Like, you know, uh, would those be considered rep replicates? Uh, no, they're not, they're not replicates. Um, they're not replicates. It's just based on... Oh, well, yeah, they're not replicates. I guess they're just, like, three different... Trajectories. Yeah, three different trajectories. So the concentration plume shows a lot of different... It's basically, like, 
a bunch of high resolution trajectories. Then my trajectories that I run are just like, this is probably where a particle that if it was at this height, at this area in the world, uh, where this is where it probably came from. So you can wow. see, so you can see like, I have three lines that are, they're backtracked. So I have where the particulate matter is and where my monitor is and then where it might've come from. And you can see how they all kind of go over that Delaware area pretty close, mm -hmm. but they came from three different areas in like one's in New York, mm -hmm. one's in Pennsylvania, and then the other one's in like South, South wow. Pennsylvania in the middle. Mm -hmm. So that's just based on where it would be height wise in the atmosphere at my that's so interesting. So that the red one is actually the lowest one to the ground where the sensor is. And you and as you look through this chart here, um, there's a big dip from the boundary layer, uh, the top of it, all the way to the ground, like pretty quick right there. And that would be the particulate mass that's probably closest to the one that I found because it's closest to the ground at the end and you notice it's like the furthest south one. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty interesting. So what does this mean? Uh, we'll have to show the listeners like a photo of this or something yeah. or just like everything that we're talking about and all these resources like will be linked um, in some way for the episode but just what what do you make of all this? Like yeah. So what I make of all this is there's two things we that we talked about today. One was agriculture, okay, and its inputs to the environment and um, its release of particulate matter. We kind of talked about it a little bit. Should I go into that really quick? I think we should dive into it more because there's so many different types of particulate matter that could be associated um, with agriculture. We definitely could think about like quote-unquote dust and soil and like dirt and I have that in quotes because that's just a whole other thing um and there's also chemicals like chemicals that could be being applied to the land um and breathing that in is just could have a whole different effect so yeah go for it so let's so what we just went over was anthropogenic inputs to the environment, basically from industry, right? And that's getting blown over my parents' property. I learned that, and I originally was going out to research the particulate matter from agriculture, um, but I came across this information. So now as we pivot towards agriculture, um, you have to understand that in, in Europe, they did a research, and like 70% of particulate matter uh, in that's found in Europe was released from agricultural um, landscapes. And this means, uh, to go further into it, um, particulate matter 2.5, like we talked about before, so particulate matter 2.5 microns and below. Um, and that's the smallest category, right? That is the smallest category. Uh, they have a PM 1.0, but I don't know if I would trust any of that data. Right. And PM 10, don't trust the PM 10 data. So here's a warning. Uh, don't trust the PM10 data. No one knows what they're really talking about. Okay, interesting. And I got papers to back it up offline. Okay, we'll good. <laughs> and um, there's like, there's actually, it's funny, there's a paper and it was like PM10 and it just had a big red X over it. Like, nope, you can't use it for that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so 
When you think about PM 2.5 emission from agriculture, there are, are a few different things that, could, that we could be talking about. Uh, one could be when you till the land. So as you run a plow on the land and you're basically aerating the land and you know getting it ready for its next crops, you're seeing if there's rocks in the land, right? Because then you gotta like de-rock it. There's like a whole thing. I mean, I'm personally, I personally have a lot of feelings around tilling versus not, just in terms from the like soil health perspective. Um, but all of that aside, there are definitely people that are still tilling the land for one reason or another. Oh, 100%. Um, that are not tapped into the soil health um, discussions. That's and true. Anyway, I just want to add that in. No, absolutely. That's so that's. Um, there is research that looked at till versus no-till, and no-till absolutely releases less particulate matter into the air. Uh, it should be, I mean, it should be obvious, I feel like, um, just because the land isn't getting degraded as much, right? So that's, think about the Dust Bowl. Um, yeah, so there's definitely been research that shows that no-till is the way to go. Um, but over larger landscapes in terms of particulate matter in terms of particulate matter well i think it's better because there would be there would be a lot of listeners on here that like there could just be a whole episode in and of itself of like till versus no till for a lot of reasons but um but yeah continue uh so there's the till versus the no till so people are still uh, employing the till method over larger landscapes Mm -hmm. um they're using it. They're using no-till for community gardens, community uh, shareholder operations, where you, everyone grows the food and then you get X amount. What's mm-hmm. that called? Crop sharing. Yeah. Crop sharing. Yeah. Um, so there's that. And then uh, the other main uh, release, as far as uh, land management, is the harvesting. So you know, think about that. You see a you see a harvester running through, and it's releasing particulate matter into the air. I've looked at um, emissions maps for different uh, parts of the year in terms of like harvesting in the different seasons and how that releases emissions in terms of like CO two and nitrous oxide and methane. Um, and yeah, like the global maps for that are totally wild like you can tell when people are tilling you can tell when people are harvesting so but in terms of like particulate matter i imagine that they have similar patterns to the emissions maps but that's something i don't really know much about yeah uh definitely i I just want to speak to that uh quickly um when you talk about the release of uh nitrous oxide so that would be no2 or nox um, or sulfur oxide, so that's SO2. Would those be considered particulates? So, yeah. 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 But like PM 2.5 and below. Uh, yeah, I mean, if they're small enough, I guess. Uh, yeah, because everything's at the nanometer level, so it's gotta be. Yeah. Um, and they also acidify the air. So that's like another thing. So if there's this particulate matter, if there's this organic matter in the air, um, these, they call them volatile organic compounds or bi- biologic volatile organic compounds, so BVOC or VOC. Um, and then there's like SVOC, which is like semi-volatile organic compounds. These are compounds that, based on the input of light or uh, what kind of water it's surrounded by or what kind of water is on, on its surface, on this you know micron surface, you know what's happening there. 
um, they could go either way. So they could turn into one thing or turn into the other thing. Um, yeah, what was the question? What did we ask? Um, well, we were going into talking about chemicals from agriculture. Yeah, so as far as particulate matter with these dust, with like, if you think about it, the respirable dust that I read about in the 70s or the 60s, uh, that they've noticed, so they put a camera out on two sides of the farm, a LIDAR, which is like, what does that stand for? Light emitting diet. LIDAR, look it up. <laughs> and they shoot these lasers out, and then they get a picture of the plume of smoke. And they saw that the top of it was like 80 meters in the air. Okay. So if And that, what was the biggest height that you looked at in your model? The highest level for what I believe is the top of the... Uh, mixing boundary layer is 1500 compared to 80 compared to 80 hmm. but where i ran my model simulation was at 10 was the lowest so you ran where my sensor is so i ran 10 i ran i ran 10 300 and 700 at my at where my uh monitor is mm -hmm. and then when it did its projections the top one or the bottom one and the top one went to the top of the boundary layer and just kind of floated around. And the top of the boundary layer you were saying is 1,500? 1,500. 1,600. Okay. okay. Um, so you can see how there could something could be happening where this anthropogenic volatile organic compound that's being released from uh, Wilmington, Delaware, and it's as it travels over my family's house, if you're tilling at the same time or harvesting or... As we talked about with the input of chemicals, pesticides, uh, fertilizers, uh, any anything that you spray, all right? That's like all being mixed up in the air around you. All of it. Anytime that there's machinery, anytime that there's work being done. The pumps for the water, the pumps for the irrigation run on diesel. They're not plugging them into the wall, and even if they were, that's probably some of the stuff coming from the... From Delaware. Right. There, there's so many inputs here. So, like, there's so... This is why I could tell you're super interested in it. Because, like, I, I'm sure... Yeah, you're looking at this data and thinking about, all right, I have these numbers. Or have some numbers. And what do these numbers mean? And now you're in the place of, like, decoding what your numbers mean. And... That's I need more numbers too. You need more numbers. <laughs> and but it's good to plot out like okay, so cuz it's wow, I'm just thinking about it. I'm like, yeah, there's so many chemicals. We we've got chemicals of all different types. We've got quote-unquote emissions, CO2, nitrous oxide and methane, and we've got this uh, these other dusts and etc and things that I haven't even named and they're all mixing in the atmosphere according to different conditions. And, and then you're breathing them in. And you're breathing them in. So what's what are we actually breathing in? And it's on the top of the river that's running through. Right. right. It's, it's it's depositing as well onto everything. So it's also on the food. Like it's it, everywhere. It's so, everywhere. So this so installing these purple air sensors is incredible because we're starting to be able to have a little bit more agency um, behind just like what's going on in our environment and, and being able to know that no is a strong word being able to have insight on that and so then great. so then you kind of ask like well what do you do now right 
So I have this information from my purple air quality monitor. I've ran these high split models that show me where the concentration of particulate matter is coming in. I have research that shows that there's input to the atmosphere from agriculture of particulate matter. As I said, Europe was like 16, 17% of total particulate matter. Um, and I, I, I'm kind of starting to get a picture. So the next thing to do is you, I have, I'm going to be getting another type of sensor and I'm going to trap all the particles on this, like, think of it like a carbon filter, like glass, right? Like a HIPAA glass filter. And then I'm going to run uh, spectroscopy on the particles to figure out their composition. And then hopefully that helps you even solidify all the models and everything that you're doing. And and so just for for the listeners a little bit more about like what spectroscopy and can tell you is like all right, we the the purple air sensors will tell you more of like the concentration of what's in the air. It'll tell you the concentration and when it shows up. And when it shows up, but the spectroscopy can give insight into like who are we dealing with here. And by who, I mean, like, what is the identity of these particles? Um, and how are they structured? And how are they structured? Right. And and a lot of where, like, I took um, this environmental microbiology class in during my master's. And w- one of the most memorable things and something that I've thought about most frequently since I've been out of that class is just, like, what does the breakdown look like in the environment? Because every... I mean, yeah, breakdown of some things are easier to think about than others. Um, but yeah, what's the what's the pathway of this? That's what they call it in environmental microbiology. Like, what's the pathway and what are the steps to get it to being broken down? Um, wh- who are the, the allies that help us break things down in the environment? And when I say who are the allies, I'm talking about like, fungus, bacteria, um, different microorganisms that can aid in this. Um, just because I, I think about like holistic environmental care like that as compared to, you know, there's of course like other solutions that we can come in with in terms of remediation. Um, but that's even kind of a little bit of a different topic. I guess that would be where the biochar stuff comes in of just like, all right, you know, using carbon in this charcoal form to immobilize things that's one aspect of it um but anyway yeah so so spectroscopy can be really informative of like how to take action and what to do next yep yeah exactly just to figure out and and it really you know when you try to have any sort of movement happen uh because we're going to have to work with the government. You know, that's kind of where we are. Um, you need to have as much proof as possible what's happening is happening. That way, you know, you got to make it hard for them to say no, right? Um, so by running spectroscopy on the particles, you can, you know, say, hey, this, is, this usually comes from X kind of release. I see this is happening here. I ran all these models. I mean, everything's pointing towards I'm right. Uh, and then, you know, I guess I got to rub elbows or something. I don't know how that part works. That's why that's my father comes in, I guess. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, networking and just like numbers in the community. And 
Like it really does start with, well, it seems to start with the questions and then the data and then the spreading that knowledge and creating a network and creating a foundation um, so that people can believe in the work and, and want to push for more. I mean, like there's there's so much environmental racism out there. I was just actually reading an article this morning which is talking about the presence of Amazon in Red Hook and just like how it's increased not only the noise pollution but just in general the environmental pollution and the community behind or the community in Red Hook is like starting to speak out about it you know like there's articles in the news that um are talking about the communities what the community is dealing with and I actually found out about this from Red Hook Farms shout out to Red Hook Farms um who's sharing it just because yeah people are on the ground and are going to come together to to speak on what they're dealing with so just back to like the environmental racism like there there are so many marginalized groups across the country that are dealing with these conditions that are placed upon them by people with power and people with money and people that don't seem to give a fuck so yeah again like this is why i think that your work is really incredible just because it's something that lays out a plan for people to collect it on their environment and form something to say about it like the more that you do your work and the more that you do your work focus in this one place in south jersey yep then you can lay this out somebody else can do this in their area and hopefully find the connection to contact their city their government and say no i'm not having these health hazards around me i'm not having these threats to my environment my clean air my clean water my clean soil no and to let you know like where so that high split modeling system that i talked about what they actually use this for is whenever there's like a toxic release event all right that's what they were talking Thinking about. about ohio yes so that they use this on ohio to figure out where the particulate matter would travel will travel to the if, high split model the high split modeling system. and the purple air sensors are not necessarily uh not necessarily but if they're there you're getting data mm-hmm. um so we can use this to monitor your backyard your friend's backyard the downtown area you'll see that the downtown area during 5 p.m you'll see that there's more particulate matter in the air that that's just you know creating knowledge which is giving you agency to hey maybe we need a new route for this or hey maybe we shouldn't have all these like this is a really busy street why are we all eating outside right now right just you know things like that anything you you can apply this to anything if you find yourself struggling to breathe (laughs) quite literally especially if you're part of one of these marginalized communities it's no surprise that the people in power have the cheapest land near like the worst quality air right it doesn't surprise me this farmland where my family lives it's not it's nothing special out there like it's just a bunch of working class families right my stepfather has all sorts of health issues and he's had the house since like the 70s so what if this is something that caused that all right just having terrible air all the time being outside just things to think about so 
you know, you, you have a chance to, you, you can contact me. If you have a Windows computer, I can help you install the high split. I'll show you what to do, at least at the base level. I'm still getting into, there's, there's a lot you can do. Um, but just, you know, try to figure out, like if you get a Purple Air monitor or look on the Purple Air website, um, we'll have it linked. You can look at the other monitors and if there, maybe your neighbor has one, right? That's, that's good enough data for you to do on your own house if you'd like. Um, and just try to figure out, you know, what's going on? How does this all work? Where's the wind coming from? Where's it going? And yeah, I, I'm definitely going to keep my eyes and ears out for potential community funding opportunities that could allow people that are interested to get something like this. Um, and you can also yeah. contact your local newspaper. My local newspaper uh, just did an article that says like only 17 of the counties in New Jersey are monitoring their air quality. Mm. That's There's a lot more than 17 counties. There's a lot more than 17 counties in New Jersey. Yeah. I think that's less than half. Yeah. So that should give you some agency right there. You know, if you got it, if you know somebody on the planning board, go talk to them. Right. Express your concerns. Um, I don't know anybody on the planning boards in in New Jersey. Yeah, you're from Maryland, so that makes sense. Yeah, that area. Well, yeah, but. And yeah, I'm just not, I, I was actually like living more around the Rutgers area, like when I was studying, so okay. that's, that's like the closest tie that I have to communities in New Jersey, but yeah, I also want to talk about, yeah, that's, I'm, I'm glad that you said that we will link Trevor's information in, uh, with this episode and some of the resources that he talked about. Um, and we'll definitely post follow-up information based on the things that we've mentioned. On the last note that I'm looking at here, something we could talk about is um, ecology and revolution. That might be a nice note to end on. Murray Bookchin. Okay, so whenever we're moving into a very interesting time on Earth, okay, as if we don't know. And I talked about Rachel Carson in Silent Spring, and you should read it, and that's one of the seminal works that uh, was credited with the beginning of the EPA. Um, along with her reading, I've read uh, Murray Bookchin's Ecology and Revolution. And basically, it calls for uh, food sovereignty, and the dispersal of people from cities, right? Now, we're hearing this more and more as, a, uh, as Marx becomes popular, right? And Marx's theory, when I say becomes popular, <laughs> Marx's theory it, is... It, become, it gets recognition from different people at different times in different ways. Yes. But just be, as we move into this area where we have more community advocacy for everything because it's gonna if it doesn't wind up that way I don't know how we're gonna wind up um, just be careful when you read things like this uh, when there's people that are like grasping for power mm -hmm. um, because this is a this is not only like an us issue 
This is happening all over the world, okay? And if you're trying to fix your local area, that's great. That's what we pretty much need to do. Um, but understand that there's also like geopolitical uh, powers and issues at play everywhere. Um, so as you approach these problems, uh, think about doing it less revolution. <laughs> I don't know how to say that, but think about using the structures that we already have in place in the United States in particular, because I don't really know anything about other countries and other governments. Um, try there first. I think we need to all remember, just try to use your yeah, government like first. local level. It really starts at the local level. That's why I brought, I wanted to bring attention to just like what it looks like to create a blueprint. And again, like why I am really intrigued by your work because blueprint creation is so important. And we can spend a lot of energy and time being angry or fearful about the way that things are and how we wish that they could be different. And as somebody who like I've always I've been reflecting on this a lot lately I've just like always had a will to change and like a drive for change um, and things that I get disgruntled about like yes I want to have clean water I want to have access to clean water we all do and that we it's a right you know and so making change in small ways creating data like collecting data documentation creating blueprints like i think this is where we begin so that's a shout out to you and the work that you're doing that's also a shout out to anybody that's in their community that takes action for their sovereignty like this matters so and and work with your indigenous communities yes Absolutely. Because they steward the knowledge that we all need to just sit down and listen to. And it's not always scientists that are telling you what you need to hear. And just another point on that, like, let's think twice about what's considered science and what's not. Because the way that people, the way that indigenous people have been stewarding land all around the world for a long, long, long time before the white men created science in the way that it is. That is science. Experiential knowledge is also science. Absolutely. So, you know, maybe you can breathe easier after you work on this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. Thank you so much, Trevor. Thank you for sharing all this information. I know I'm personally really looking forward to seeing how your work develops and um, I'm, I'm going to keep this in my mind as I continue to visit different communities and we with different communities that I'm part of. Yeah. And you know, just if you go out and there's a place you frequent, see if there's an air monitor there. Maybe, maybe go to the business down the street. Try to have them pay the 250 bucks. You're right. And then do the research based on their property. Go to, you got, a, you got a friend with a bunch of money? Hey, you should buy this. I'll do it at your house. It doesn't need to be your backyard. If you live in an apartment, find somewhere that would like you to do the research. Uh, maybe a wine bar that backs up to a farm or something. That'd be cool. <laughs> right on. So uh, where can the people find you and contact you? 
Uh, Instagram is at Trev Durning, so T-R-E-V-D-U-R-N-I-N-G, and uh, my email is uh, T-J-D, so that's uh, Tango Juliet Delta 2148 at Columbia.edu. Awesome. And this is Emily uh, with the Community Agriculture Project. You can find us on Instagram at Community Ag Project. And our email is communityagproject at gmail.com. Um, thank you, thank you for listening to this episode. And just to give you a look forward at the other episodes we have coming up, I have quite a string of interviews planned for this summer. Uh, we are heading up to a farm in Salem, Massachusetts this weekend to give a little insight on what's happening there. Uh, about to get a whole East Coast rundown, you know? So thank you for listening. Uh, please check out the website and Instagram for more resources. And talk to you soon. All right. Talk to you.